Assalamu alaikum, may the peace and blessings of God Almighty be upon you all. Thank you very much for listening in and welcome to another episode of the Drive Time Show here on The Voice of Islam. Today with myself Reza and brother Daniel, over the next two hours we're going to be with you speaking about two topics as usual. In the first half of the program we're going to te- uh, sp- speak about literacy. Is it being given the value it deserves or not? That is a question we're asking you in the first half of the program. And then in the second half of the program we're going to speak about blind faith. We're going to speak about certainty. We're going to talk about science and what the world thinks about this topic. Uh, and of course, what the Islamic perspective is on that. As always, you can give us a call on 0208-687-7878, or you can send us a tweet at Voice of Islam UK. You can also get in contact with us over uh, Twitter, as I said, uh, Instagram, uh, LinkedIn. You send us an email but the best way, of course, as always, do give us a call. Brother Daniel, assalamu alaikum to you as well. Wa alaikum assalam, peace be on you and all the listeners. Um, really good to have you back. Yeah, it's good to good to be back. Um, Did uh, you miss us? Oh, of course. What, what kind of question <laughs> is that? Of course I missed uh, everyone here. Yeah, it's good to be back. It's good to be back to... Um, a, a bit of a, a warm weather here. Mm. You know, when I left two weeks ago, uh, everybody thought, well, that's it with the summer, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And now here we, we're in, um, in the beginning of autumn, enjoying summer. <laughs> Global warming. What can you do? Correct. Now, as I said, so in the first half of the program, we're going to talk about literacy. Insufficient literacy skills have far-reaching implications impacting various life stages. In childhood and adulthood, lacking literacy can hinder education, job prospects, of course, and parenting, perpetuating cycles of limited social mobility. And in the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful, convey thou in the name of thy Lord who created, created man from a clot of blood, convey... And that Lord is most generous, who taught man by the pen, taught man what he knew not. These were the very first verses revealed to the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, uh, by God Almighty, that became the first parts, the first words of the sacred book of Islam, the Holy Quran. And we find these verses in chapter 96. These are verses 1 to 6. So from the very, very first day of revelation, the very first moment when this religion of Islam started, God Almighty put a huge emphasis on the importance of of acquiring knowledge, on the importance of literacy, in the on the importance of acquiring knowledge and and realizing that everything that we have been taught, everything that we know, actually came from the Almighty. Absolutely. Um, yeah, literacy, I think, is the um, uh, is the core uh, of progress, and Islam laid out that principle fourteen hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. I um, I saw. I was um, just talking um, with my kids the other day, and we were talking about um, South Africa. Um, uh, sorry, uh, South Korea. Mm-hmm. Uh, beg your pardon. And um, there was a documentary pre- prepared by the BBC. Um, which is, I think, uh, a few years old now. But I remember, and I was sharing that with my kids, um, uh, that doc- watching the documentary. And in that documentary, they're talking about South Korea, and they, uh, this BBC correspondent goes to various universities. And in one of the universities, he's actually talking to a student. And he, he asks the student, okay, so what, what's your daily routine like? Well, well, I get up at 6, I'm at the uni by 8, and then, you know, I... Uh, 
Usually I'm here until four or five attending classes, and then I go to the library and I do work, and I I don't usually return home before um, 12 a.m. or even 1 a.m. sometimes. Wow. Um, so this correspondent asked, why, why this? Why, why do you have to work so hard? And his answer is something which has really stayed with me over the years, and I really um, uh, very poignant. And he said, uh, in, in exact in in these very exact words, he said, "Education is a national obsession hmm. in South Korea," and that really, um, uh, you know, I I, I was I, I I I was really impressed. Yeah to say the least, by what this uh, this uh, young student had to say. And it, it really sort of encapsulated the national spirit. Hmm. It really encap- uh, encapsulated why that nation has progressed so much in so little time. Hmm. Um, it is, um, it is, uh, it, it's, it's, it's quite uh, common in Pakistan, for example, to hmm. talk about uh, the uh, with some pride, unfortunately, and now uh, with some remorse as well, that in the 60s, as early or as late as the 60s, South Korea took one of Pakistan's five-year plans mm. and used them as a model uh, for their progress in South Korea. And it worked. And it well, not only did it work, I mean, <laughs> look at the progress in the making. And uh, yeah. so, yeah, so that's a good point, actually. It, it, it worked if you used them, and if it, they don't work if you don't use them. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So that's, that. it's, it's, I mean, that that's basically what you want at the end of the day, isn't it? Uh, you want to have that, uh, the ultimate goal where it becomes an obsession, a national obsession. With knowledge, with uh, how you spend your time, basically, um, no time for 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 you know f- anything else, but but uh, to progress and and that part. Absolutely, yeah, and and I think that's so very much is also um, in keeping with the Islamic spirit, which is yeah. uh, you know there's a tradition of the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, that knowledge is the lost property of of a, uh, of a yeah. believer. Yeah. So yeah, it's uh, it's very similar. Unfortunately, again, you know, one of the things that uh, Muslims in general seem to have forgotten. Now, we're asking you uh, a question in our opinion poll on Instagram. So go to our Instagram story at Vo- uh, Voice of Islam UK. Which country has the best education rates of their children? Is it China? Is it India? Is it Canada? Or is it Singapore? If you know it, by all means, do leave us a comment. If you don't want to add anything on top of that, if you disagree, if you agree, by all means, do drop us a comment and we'll inshallah include it into the program as we go along. Our first guest for today is joining us now on the line. We are going to talk to Professor Guy Merchant. Uh, He's a distinguished professor of literacy and education with expertise in digital literacy and its connection to children and youth. He actively contributes to education research and professional work. Currently, he is teaching and supervising students at the Department of Teacher Education, College of Social Sciences and Arts. With that, good afternoon, PC Pony, and welcome to The Draft Time Show, Professor Merchant. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me along. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, if I can ask you, what are, what are your thoughts on balancing traditional reading and writing skills with digital literacy in today's educational landscape? I mean, you've probably observed how that has changed over the last couple of decades. Um, what are your thoughts on that? For sure, yeah. I mean, basically, I think it's vital that we have both 
it's vital that uh, children and young people have both. Uh, for most adults in our working or daily life, uh, we're probably predominantly digital. Uh, and kids are getting to know these tools as well. Hmm. But we still know how to do the traditional skills. We still know how to use pen and paper. And uh, that's important um, not only in our daily life, but it's important in school and educational settings too. So it's not a question of either or. It's not a question of we've moved on and the pencil's now been made redundant. It's a, a case of both uh, now, and that's a challenge. Right. Professor, how would you say that um, uh, our education system has imbibed both of these principles of uh, improving literacy through uh, reading and writing skills and digital literacy? Yeah, I think um, the, the way things have gone is that we've got uh, quite an uneven picture, um, particularly when you think of the area of digital literacy. Um, because so much has been devolved to schools, um, it's really a question of whether a school makes these things their priority or not. Um, we have had a pledge to raise literacy standards generally for a number of years, and we've been moderately successful at that, uh, at that. although, of course, um, recent years, particularly the pandemic, which I'm sure we'll get on to discuss, uh, has had an impact on this. Um, but our response has been patchy, uh, mm. is, is the point I'd like to make. Do you think we've yeah. even got our priorities right, Professor? We've, we've been closing libraries left, right and centre. <laughs> No, I don't think we've got our priorities right. I think, um, you, you know, Blair's Labour government came in with the um, policy education, 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 mm. which was a, 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 a very good uh, uh, slogan. Um, but I don't think we've really backed that up with the resourcing necessary, particularly in a crucial area, learning to read and learning to write traditionally and digital really is a gateway to future success. Uh, and I'm sure everybody would agree with me. We need to make that a number one national priority. I mean, to fund it where it's working well, and we also need to fund it where it's not working well. Do you think, do you see that happening anytime soon? Um, In terms well, of the government priorities? <laughs> I don't. I'm waiting to see <laughs> uh, what, what uh, political parties come up with, but I must say I've been increasingly disappointed uh, over the last um, five years or so. Um, I mean, you know, carry on. Yeah, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Our schools don't even have the right roofs on people's heads at the moment. Forget about the, you know, anything else. Uh, and uh, you know, it's a, a and whatever you see, it's sort of a knee-jerk reaction to everything. So. Uh, you know, a, a prisoner escapes, then everybody's talking about whole media and everybody's on a bandwagon and talks about <laughs> lack of funding to prisons. And then something else happens and there'll be something else. And we obviously talk about the environment, which is for the right reasons. But, yes, you know, yes. when are we going to talk about libraries and schools and, uh, and, and the right funding to schools? I, I completely agree. Um, and um, I think there's another uh, angle to this as well. Uh, successive... Uh, um, education secretaries and governments have um, put an excessive amount of energy into monitoring teachers, into 
testing regimes mm. at the expense of promoting what to me is a vital skill, which is literacy itself and the confidence in using it. Uh, and I think we've, um, we've actually been following a little bit of a red herring, if you'll excuse that expression, mm. um, following test scores, international comparisons and so forth, rather than strengthening the literacy skills of the children that we work with. And that involves having a pride in literacy and putting it at the front of our educational agenda. Now, Professor, you spoke about, you mentioned the the pandemic, um, which disrupted mm. education globally. We know that um, as a mm. parent, you've you witnessed that yourself. Mm. How do you think, I mean, from, from, from a personal point of view, if depended mm. on what school your child was attending, some schools were quite proactive in that, some schools maybe not. How has the pandemic affected these these rates, literacy rates, especially among you know the vulnerable population? And and what is it? Do you think that because I, what is it? Two years that we've come out of it. Do you think that we have effectively mitigated these effects, or do you think that there's still room for improvement here? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty much agreed that globally pandemic had a negative effect on education generally um, and literacy uh, particularly. Um, and we're still recovering from that. I think um, recent test scores underline that. Mm. Um, so so that, that's certainly true. Um, it's quite a variable picture. Um, certain groups were clearly hit um, more uh, uh, more heavily than others um, in terms of the pandemic itself um, and, of course, in terms of schools' ability to respond to that. Um, so, in fact, I'm just reading a piece of work now that sort of uh, uh, is investigating that. Uh, and we get a very varied picture, Some particularly on an individual level, teachers who feel confident and competent using technology, were able to deliver a reasonable education to uh, children in their care in pandemic. Others were not able to do it. Um, but then, of course, it goes deeper than that. Um, not all families, not all children had access to uh, equipment or uh, equipment of the right quality uh, to be able to access that um, that education. So we, we end up with a very varied picture. Um, interestingly, when you look at globally, um, those populations which were least affected tended to be those populations in developing countries. Um, but that might be because of low levels of literacy or underfunded schooling in the first place. But closer to home, uh, I think some communities have suffered a lot more than others. Mm. Um, and we need to redress that now. And um, some things we need to do, well, we've proven that early interventions work. Schemes like Books for Babies, early reading, writing mm. programs, very, very important, proven success rates, catch-up programs for slightly older children, and community partnerships, school community partnerships, as well as community-led partnerships. Community-led initiatives, I think, are very, very important. Um, so we can do a lot. Hmm. Certainly, Professor. So uh, before you came um, online, I was talking about this uh, this BBC documentary that uh, I watched a few years ago about education being a national obsession in South Korea. 
and no surprise uh, about the progress South Korea has made. Um, um, uh, we're running a sort of a similar um, uh, quiz on uh, on Instagram right now. The best education rates uh, for the which country has the best education rates of children? So the options are China, India, Canada, and Singapore. I won't put you on the spot to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank but, you. I heard that at the introduction. I, I, I've got my own views on this, but I thought I hope he doesn't ask me that. <laughs> no, I won't go there. Uh, so the, the the question that I uh, that I want to ask you is, I mean. In terms of you know going back to the political, when are our, our, our politicians? Uh, you know we've made China our number one enemy, um, but when are we going to realize that uh, the progress that Huawei, which we have banned pr- from providing you know five G uh, connectivity mm-hmm. to us and mm-hmm. uh, and all sorts of other noises that we keep on hearing about about China, um, when are we going to realize that it's it, actually it's about the investment? that these countries, China, South Korea, others, Japan, have been mm-hmm. making in education, which is why they have progressed so much, rather than, you know, just just saying, oh, they're the bad guys and um, uh, and, and be political about it. So, yeah, so not a political question. The question really is, in terms of the, um, when are politicians going to get it? <laughs> I guess simply mm-hmm. put. Yeah, I agree. And I suppose... Uh, one answer to that is it's down to the likes of you and I um, to uh, bring it to our friends, our community's attention and uh, make it a political issue uh, to force the agenda, to write to our MPs or, or, or whatever's the most effective method of doing that in these difficult times. But I think we have to keep on talking about it. We have to be as persuasive about it as we can. Um, I mean, you mentioned Singapore. I mean, I'm amazed at the amount that they invest, yes. uh, particularly in the, the digital technology. Um, they, they leave our schools uh, standing and, uh, you know, and they're very successful as a result. Uh, I'm not trying to covertly ask you, answer your question, by the way. <laughs> That's still have to be honest <laughs> But the investment's impressive. Um, and it's a political wake-up call. I mean, you said it wasn't a political question, but in a way it is a political question. Mm. Um, you know, perhaps with a small p, it's not mm. a party political question. Yes. But I think we just have to keep on lobbying uh, for the sake of our communities, for the sake of our children, for the sake of our brothers and sisters, uh, whatever religious persuasion mm. we are, whatever community we, we, we have allegiance to, uh, the same is true, actually. Uh, we need to lobby for it. Uh, and we need a good education for all. We need to invest in the future. So I, I have um, uh, two daughters. One of them goes to um, a, a high school and uh, the other one mm-hmm. goes to a junior school. Mm-hmm. And in both of these schools, two different schools, uh, mm-hmm. the topic, uh, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the information we keep on getting from the school is that they, they're short of funds. That's yes. what we've been hearing for the last at least ten years, if not more, um, yes. in, in 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 from various schools um, in various localities, and hmm. um, you know that it is just unbelievable that and and there have been different governments in in the last ten years, but unfortunately, yes. this I mean I don't want to belabor the point, but it, it's it's sad almost the state of um, that you, the state of affairs in our schools these days, which are supposed to be really the breeding grounds of, of uh, you know, future leaders and scientists and, uh, uh, and, and leaders in technology. 
but um, uh, there is not enough funding, and they, they, you know, they really have been crying out loud for the last at least a decade, if not more. Um, yes, it's not sad. It's more than that. It's tragic, yeah. uh, and I long for a turnaround. Um, and of course, uh, that breeds inequity because mm, if you, you're, if your children, if you see that, and if you've got um, some disposable wealth, you're going to think, well, maybe I'd get a better deal yeah. for my own children by going privately. And of course, that strips away quite a lot from the public education mm. system, which is sad. Um, and of course, the other side of the coin is that um, where schools lack funding in some areas, let's not name them, but in some <laughs> areas, parents can raise quite a lot of money and help to subsidize hmm. uh, the, their public education, you know, buying equipment and raising funds for the school fund, supporting initiatives. Uh, and that's not available to everybody. It's not possible for everyone. Um, you know, we, we don't need to labor hmm. the point about social disadvantage. We know it's there. Having said that, Professor, the, the state hmm. of affairs as it is, what do you think that we need to do? What innovative strategies can we employ to achieve this goal? I, and, and I'm asking on behalf of a parent, I'm asking on behalf of, of teachers and schools with, you know, let's face it, with their limited means that, that, that are available. How do we encourage that lifelong love for reading and writing in that generation? Where does it start? How much of that, um, you know, in, in your expertise, that uh, the 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 digital digital literacy and, and its connection to to kids and and to the youth, to the youth do we do we apply? It starts. It's quite clear. Uh, it starts from a very very young age, um, and there's a lot of knowledge now that um, babies, hmm. you know, even quite young, uh, very young uh, hmm. babies, watch their parents, watch adults. Uh, they watch them on their phones. <laughs> mm. They watch them reading and writing. And um, to see adults and role models read, write and enjoy it is a crucial thing. Um, that's quite clear. Um, the, uh, as we progress, I think there's a crucial importance to uh, have reading materials and writing activities that spark children's interest, uh, reading and writing materials that young readers and writers can identify with. Um, and so that's a question of resourcing and a question of encouraging, if you like, um, early reading and writing. Um, mm. Sharing books, reading material in the home, it's not new, um, but that's very, very important to do, whether they be fact fiction, whether they be secular or religious, uh, doesn't bother me at all. Mm. And the core thing is sharing enthusiasm and passing on the, uh, the light of learning, if you like. Um, and of course, buying and borrowing books mm. or reading materials, crucial. Uh, research that's been around for quite some time shows quite high correlations 
to uh, between the uh, ownership of books and the number of books in the home and children's success rate in, in literacy as, as in schools and, uh, and in life. So in a way, it's quite clear what we have to do. We, we, just like we want to put reading and writing, digital and non-digital, uh, at the top of um, educational agenda, we need also to put it at the top of what happens in the home mm. and, of course, what happens in the wider community as children get older. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. And, and uh, Professor, there are great tools available. I was just made aware, uh, made aware of this tool called Accelerated Reader, which was yes, yes, um, yes. Yeah. which was made available to us by uh, by my uh, by my daughter's school, and yeah. uh, it is such a good tool that you know she reads a book and then uh, that particular tool allows us to to uh, to take a, uh, allows her to take a quiz and us to check whether she's actually read the book number one <laughs> and number two what she's actually understood uh, from the book or not because my my worry is always I mean, I, I, we try to get her books from the library and uh, whatnot yeah. but yeah. Uh, you know who knows what she, what she yeah. does with them uh, but this is such an excellent tool that uh, you know you uh, you she finishes a book you know she goes online she finishes this yeah. quiz and uh, and she gets uh, marked on that 80%, 90%, 100%, whatever. And that gives you an idea. Well, okay, thank God she actually read it mm. and she understood yeah. uh, good bit of it well, as I think well. that parents need to be up to date as well, isn't it? That's If you don't know the tools that are yeah. available out there, and, and I'm exactly. sure there's there's many of them out there, Correct. Um, you, you need to stay on the ball as well. Professor, last question from my side. Let's, t- let's talk a little bit about, about illiteracy which often affects marginalized and vulnerable populations the most. Mm. How, how then can we ensure that, that these literacy programs are inclusive, they are accessible to these groups, that the information is available to them and they know where to go? Mm-mm. Big question. Um, you know, we have responsibility there um, to continue asking those questions. As somebody, myself, who gets involved in literacy programs, there are always things that are uh, close to my heart uh, and questions I'll be asking. Um, but we also need to be asking questions at school, at local and national level. Um, and the reasons uh, for doing that, we've already sort of, um, you, you know, outlined um, uh, these sort of problems of funding, uh, problems of pandemic always tend to hit the most vulnerable groups. So we've got to make our voice heard. Mm. Um, we need to use community groups uh, in order to raise awareness of the importance both of traditional and digital literacy. Um, and if all that sounds a little bit like we need to do lots and lots of badgering people, I think there is a, 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 a balance to that. I think we need to celebrate literacy achievements of children and young people in our own communities mm. a, a little bit like you've already sort of said about that accelerated reading and uh, and the benefits of that uh, celebrate the linguistic resources of uh, different communities as well uh, i mean i suppose underlining our conversation we've sort of been in i think i've been sitting here imagining literacy equals english but of course we know um that it's much broader than that mm. um and in a connected world, um, having access to literacy in more than one language is a great skill. It's a great asset.
Wonderful. Absolutely. Do we want to share the answer to the to the question, or do we want to keep the professor intrigued for for the next thirty thirty minutes? Uh, it's, it's painful. <laughs> so, well, professor, let me say that you know you you were close, uh, but 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 not there. So, the question again for the uh, for our listeners is: Which country has the the best education rates for their children? Um, A. China. B. India. C. Canada. D Singapore, um, and uh, Professor, if it's any consolation, actually, most of the people have said Singapore, but it's actually China. Mm. Oh, yeah. that's a surprise! <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for for joining us. <laughs> Lovely having you, Professor. Yeah. Okay. That was thank, great. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Me. And I'll be a gracious loser. <laughs> <laughs> Have a lovely uh, evening and the weekend. Peace be with you, Professor. Thank you very much. Thank Bye-bye you. now. Bye. Professor Guy Merchant, Distinguished Professor of Literacy and Education, uh, joining us on the, the line. What a wonderful interview that was. Now, on, on that book one, before we go to our next guest who's waiting with us on the line, I, I saw this one clip, I you know, these social media influencers and moguls. This is not some young guy. He he was talking about um, the the that the um, the, the money, basically, um, how, what would you say that? Um, not, not wealth, but the currency in their home is books. Ah, wow. So Amazing. if the kid comes to him and he says, mm. I want this and this, mm. and he says, okay, you want that? That equals 20 books. Right, right. So you put the 20 books there and you yeah. ask after a week, how many books have you done? So yeah. two books. Okay, you're 18 books away from whatever you want. Exactly. And that's, you know, that it's, it's such it's, a good thing so to do. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. And, and and now you can actually go and accelerate it and actually <laughs> check whether they've actually read those 20 books or not. Exactly. Joining us on the line is now James uh, King Kinget. He uh, he's uh, he leads and develops the National Literacy Trust presence in the northeast of England through delivering the Northeast Campaign and supporting two of the charity's other hubs in the Middlesbrough in Middlesbrough and the North Yorkshire Coast. James, good afternoon, peace upon you, and welcome to the Draft Time Show. Good afternoon, thank you very much for having me. Is it Kinget or Kinjet? Uh, King Ed, yeah, Okay, perfect. All right. Thank you so much uh, for joining us once again. Uh, tell us about the mission and goals of your organization and promote in promoting literacy. How do you how do you see how do you envision a world where literacy is truly given the value it deserves? While speaking to the professor, we just realized here at home, clearly not the case. Yeah, that, yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, great to be joining you on, on International Literacy Day. Um, you know, at the National Literacy Trust, we believe that, that every day is Literacy Day, but it's great to have it celebrated. And, you know, I'm, I'm particularly heartened about UNESCO tying it in with issues about human rights, because mm-hmm. I think reading, reading is a right. And we know mm-hmm. that, you know, in challenging circumstances in countries, you know, historically, one of the first things that, that people do is is limit people's access to books and limit people's access to reading because they want to to stifle that knowledge and that expression and that creativity and that freedom, um, and and you know that some, a lot of the work of the National Literary Trust is grounded, you know, is grounded in those principles. We believe that that having the right you know having the right level of literacy skills changes everything. You know, it's the key to knowledge, it's the key to confidence, it's the key to inspiration and aspiration, um, and so you know a, a world where literacy is given the true value it deserves, I think. Would, would see us, you know, have less of a presence of a disadvantage gap, less of a less of a difference between um, those who are who are more well off and those who are who are kind of 
suffering under the conditions of poverty. Uh, there would be increased opportunities, you know, for people, you know, through through educational attainment. And I was listening with interest to to the end of your last uh, your last discussion there. You know, literacy, obviously, you know, greater literacy skills does support improved attainment at school, but but really it it it, it, it sort of supports people to change their lives in, in all kinds of different ways. It can improve your mental health and well-being. You know, it, it, lit, literacy skills affect the way in which you interact with messages all around you related to your health, related to opportunities for, for sort of, you know, happiness and prosperity. So I think, you know, by improving literacy, which we would define as as reading, writing, speaking and listening, so it's not just about books and it's not just about reading, um, you know, from, from those very first words as a very, very young child developing in the world through to your school days and training and jobs and beyond and raising your own family, you know, the, the power of literacy, the power of stories can really help people to unlock new worlds and unlock their potential. Professor, excellent work that uh, your um, organization is doing. Do you think the government is, um, uh, is also supporting efforts the government keeps on talking about leveling up. Leveling up has been a, a huge part of this government's agenda. Um, however, um, we, when we generally hear about leveling up, uh, what we hear in the media is about either a new uh, train line or um, a new highway project or some other infrastructure project that the government might be thinking of. Do you think the government actually means to invest in schools and literacy when it talks about leveling up as well? I, I would hope so. Uh, I'd, I'd like to remain optimistic that that's the case. I, th I think, you know, I, I think, yeah, you know, we, we are obviously going to end up talking about infrastructure and things like that. But I think I think there does need to be more work done to look at how schools can be better supported. You know, over the over the COVID-19 pandemic, we we had teachers you know, on the front line, there were some of the, the, the few people, the few groups who weren't shielding themselves, who were putting their, their health on the line to go and, and, and continue to try and educate, you know, our children uh, and and didn't get, you know, uh, evening round of applauses or anything like that. Hopefully did get, get credit from families and from, from local communities. But no, I think, you know, investment in schools is increasingly important. I, I think in terms of the um, you know the leveling up agenda and, and 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 the disadvantage gap that we see amongst certain communities in 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 the UK. Our response is definitely to look at a local picture. We have we have 18 um, locally running projects in England, which are all about kind of how we can galvanise the whole local community to place more importance on literacy, you know, on reading, writing, speaking and listening, and can help us to overcome some of those challenges that might exist around lack of book ownership for young people or um, challenges around lack of parental engagement and, and, and reading role models in the family. And we need that collective action, really. It's not, it can't just be the responsibility of teachers. It can't just be the responsibility mm -hmm. of, of organizations like ourselves. We, 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 we want communities to look, you know, inward at themselves and think what, what, what's within my gift to help contribute towards um, you know changing some of these sort of sometimes worrying statistics what can we do to to raise the excitement and the interest in 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 reading and writing and and, and you know how do we ensure that the, the children that are part of our communities and are the future of our communities have the have the skills not only to succeed in education and succeed in school but to to live happy and fulfilled lives because you know that's incredibly important Right. Um, 
In terms of um, adult education, uh, James, what? Um, firstly, apologies. Um, I've been pulled up by my, my, my uh, producer uh, and co-presenter uh, for calling you Professor. I hope you didn't mind that. And, uh, oh, you can call me Professor whenever you want. <laughs> <laughs> I thought so. That, that's what I told them. Um, so in terms of adult education, uh, James, what, um, number one, how important do you think that is and anything that you're doing in that direction? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think a lot of what we, we are facing in terms of, of low literacy levels amongst children and young people is a result of of often intergenerational low literacy, you know, and, and a lack of reading role models in, in the home. If children haven't seen parents have an appetite for reading, if those parents didn't see their parents regularly reading and being excited about reading, then we, we know that that filters down. And I think, you know, the education system understandably focuses on, on working with children. If they aren't able to get that additional support at home or as part of other activities that they take part in in their local community, then, you know, that's where we can see a disconnection and we can kind of see a drop off and a child who might be really excited about reading and, and, and writing and motivated to do that, you know, may find restricted opportunities to, to, to practice those skills as much as we would like. We, we definitely focus on working with parents to help them understand their role as their child's primary educator, their first educator at home. But we recognize that, that, that low literacy levels amongst those parents can be a, can be a really significant barrier. So we, we work with them to, to understand the role that they can play and to perhaps remove some of the stigma that might, you know, they might be carrying as a result of, of what they perceive to be their, their own struggles with literacy or, or you, know, you know, what are in fact their struggles with literacy. Um, we do do specific work with, with um, certain adult uh, demographics. We've got some really fascinating work in the criminal justice system uh, with some of, our, some of our prison works. But, but you know, we also signpost locally in terms of these kind of community approaches that I talked about to make sure that the parents who we're talking to, who we might be able to get access to that little bit easier if we're talking to them about what they can do to support their children, also know about the things that they can do they can do to improve their their own literacy levels you know through through um other organizations locally who might be delivering that kind of support but that reading role models piece is really important and and, and we we certainly see that light bulb moment with parents a lot in the sessions that we run where they sort of they they recognize sometimes that they haven't engaged with their children's reading mm. because they 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 don't want to feel uncomfortable or they don't want to bring back bad memories of previous experiences and things. But once they sort of see the the excitement and the uh, enjoyment that their children get out of it and they understand the, the, the small tweaks that they can make to some of their daily routines that can really help provide a platform for children to to excel. It, it, yeah, a light bulb moment is the only way I can mm. describe it. We, we see a lot of parents' motivation then increase to do more to support their children and become more aware of perhaps things that they might need to do to improve their own levels of literacy. James, do you think this is also because, you know, the the way the world is evolving, I mean, where you have these young children and, and kids where they go to school, they have these iPads, they have, you know, the smart boards and whatnot, where the, ter- where the parents used to have the, the, you know, the traditional setup. And it, having said that, how do you think that the concept of literacy has transformed beyond that traditional just reading and writing skills? 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right. There is so much competing for the attention of, of, of children today um, compared, you know, and the change has been massive even within the last few years, you know, compared with when I was a, a child at school, for example. Um, and, but I think there are opportunities that are created with that as well. You know, as I mentioned, we don't just kind of consider reading to be a, a book-based activity. Hmm. You know, we, we also promote kind of uh, reading, writing, you know, speaking and listening in an online world. You know, I think our statistics show that, that um, more than half of young people say that they find more that matches their reading interests online. So we need to meet them there. We need to, to, to find those opportunities. And we've got authors and publishers who are doing a huge amount of work in that space, you know, evidence that shows that when you listen to an audio book, for example, it, it, it stimulates your brain in, in different ways that, 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 than reading does, not necessarily better ways, but, but just different ways. It activates different parts of the brain. And, and we encourage children to explore literacy related to their interests and to think about reading related to the things that they're interested in so if they are if they are sports fans then then you know what reading can they do around sport perhaps mm. their reading comes in reading match reports or or, or programs or, or things like that well is there a is there an opportunity to, to segue from that into some other forms of reading and, and how visible are those opportunities and how can we make them more visible so, so children can make those connections and families can make those connections. So yeah, lots, lots more that is done you know, online and, and yeah, absolutely more, more competition for the sort of traditional book. But I think fantastic authors you know, looking at making those connections. And, and again, that's sort of part of changing a perception around what literacy is and, and, and what it means and, and, and making sure that there is visibility for what those opportunities are. Ah, how can I go and find a, a book, you know, a book linked to, um, linked to, to drawing or illustration? Mm -hmm. If that's something that I'm interested in, how can I find a book that is linked to, um, to some of, you know, the other pastimes that that, that occupy me and, and that excite me and, and get me interested? Any message for parents? Yeah, I, I think I think the, the message to parents is that really that this. The support that they can give to their children is is transformational. You know, it, it really can affect their lives in just so many positive ways. Um, that you know, we we fundamentally recognise how challenging it is to be a parent, particularly at the moment, particularly in some of the communities that we're talking about working. But actually, we 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 want to support them. We want to go with them on that journey. And and simple changes to behaviours like like reading for ten minutes a day or um, you know, if you don't want to read together as a family, asking the children about the things that they've read at school, the books that they're reading right now, the, 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 the conversations that they're having online and taking an interest in that um, really is motivational for children and really helps, helps children to kind of continue to retain that enthusiasm for, for reading, writing, speaking and communicating. And, and I think, you know, there is a lot of support out there. Um, you know, libraries are just such a fantastic resource. And again, I think there's a bit of a misconception that they are the libraries of old where it was silence required at all times and, <laughs> and the books had to be, had to be, you know, treated with kid gloves and kept pristine. And if you go to, to library hubs up and down the country now, they're, they're thriving and dynamic places where there are all kinds of different activities that can be undertaken. There's access to technology where we know that that's a bit of a barrier in some cases. There is, you know, support available for all facets of life. And, and of course, they're packed with, with brilliant books for, for adults and children and, and are lovely, safe, uh, encouraging places to explore reading. Wonderful. 
James from the National Literacy Trust joining us here on the line. Thank you so much for your time, James. Um, and uh, to you, we wish you a great evening ahead and a wonderful weekend. Thank you so much again for, for joining you're, us. You're Please welcome. Thanks for having me. Take care. 0208-687-7878. I'm not going to uh, repeat the poll because, hmm. well, the cat is out the bag, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I've taken the thunder away from you. <laughs> All right. Now, just a few th- interesting things that we've come across here when it comes to the United Kingdom. Did you know that in England, 31% of adults don't read in their free time, which is rising to 46% of young people aged 16 to 24, which means that around 5.8 million people in England and Northern Ireland score at the lowest level of proficiency in literacy at or below level one. And what the knock-on effect of all of that is that these low levels of literacy, they cost the UK an estimated £81 billion a year in lost earnings and increased welfare spending, impacting on the success of the economy as a whole. So per capita incomes are higher in countries where more adults reach the highest level of literacy proficiency and fewer adults are at the lowest level of literacy. Reading extensively and for pleasure can foster the development of stronger reading habits and increase literacy skills at a greater rate than through formal literacy lessons, something that our guests have highlighted in the past 50 minutes or so. So, specifically when it comes to reading to children, what impact all of that has, I think for a parent it's quite evident uh, you, we know our children best. We know what sparks their interest. As James mentioned, if you take them to the library, I know. Uh, what was that? Well, you don't really have to go to the library anymore, do you? I do. <laughs> you do? Yeah, yeah. With, with my little one, absolutely. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah, with your little one, yeah. But I, I think I went there a couple of weeks ago, and it, it, it is as James described. Mm-hmm. So they have. It's not just just books mm. you have the digital side you have you know the the comic books you have mm. that you have that uh, you, know, you name it and just them searching for what they like you will automatically be able to tell okay that's something that they're interested in and then you go according to that Absolutely. Yeah, they've made, as James was saying, uh, they have transformed or tried to transform these yeah. places. They've become very interesting places. They're interesting, uh, you know, decor as well. And they're nice places to sit for children. They're separate uh, spaces as yeah. well. So, yeah, it's uh, it's it's fun. It is fun. Now, for Muslims, no matter where we are from, uh, a child uh, for, for a Muslim and, and, and a Muslim household, what we try to do is we try to um make or spark that interest and and read the holy quran so learning arabic how to read um maybe not necessarily how to write but at least to read arabic and then later on when they grow up to also read the translation with it to understand what exactly we are saying um when it comes to the holy quran the holy book for muslims it's something that you will observe in every family every muslim family every you know observing muslim family around the world and in fact, the first word, as I mentioned in the very beginning, that was revealed of the Holy Quran was Iqra. Iqra means to, to read, to recite. Um, and the Holy Quran itself, the word Quran, means that which is read or, or, or recited often. So reading and writing is very important for everyone, including Muslims. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, encouraged 
his followers to be literate, to be um, uh, one who acquires knowledge and said that we should preserve knowledge through writing. And as Brother Nanya mentioned, there's, there's one very famous narration of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, which is said that knowledge is the lost uh, wisdom or is the lost property of a believer of a Muslim and wherever you are able to acquire it wherever you you're able to to get it get your hands on it whatever kind of knowledge that may be then to acquire that to make it your own is compulsory and it's not just as you know a lot of people may think it's it's just for 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 men because as you see in certain so-called Muslim countries um, where education is limited only for the, the the male members, it's only for the men, where you had certain countries in the past where access to higher education, access to education at all, was not given to, to, to girls and to women. It's absolutely not right. There's absolutely no place, no justification uh, in the religion of Islam. There's no narration, there's no verse of the Holy Quran that tells Muslims to keep that only for 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 the boys and for the men. It's quite the contrary. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said that acquiring knowledge is a duty. Farida, it's a it's a duty upon every it's a it's a must upon every male and female to 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 do that. And it, it does play a major role in acquiring knowledge. And if you go through, I mean we had these programs here on the Draft Time show as well. If you go through the early history of Islam, the reason why they reached that golden age where you had um, so so much progress in the field of mathematics, of physics, of chemistry, of, of you name it, was based on these teachings of the Holy Quran and the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. All right, now, um, if you would like to have your say, you can do so on 0208-687-7878. You can send us a tweet at Voice of Islam UK, or you can uh, you know, still go on uh, Instagram, although we have revealed the, um, the answer or the right, correct answer for today. But the question that we're asking you is about this topic which country has the best education rates of their children is it china is it india is it canada or is it singapore and the answer <laughs> to that uh, lo and behold is not singapore the answer to that is china china yes wonderful so china is the country where they are they have invested over the past few decades the most in terms of um providing access to education. Now, in the last couple of minutes, we want to talk about the effect or the, you know, the, 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 the benefits of reading and, and uh, um, developing that love for reading in, in your children. So reading regularly to young children offers, uh, you know, multiple benefits. There's only so much that we can mention here in this limited time. Um, it, it comforts them. Of course, uh, it gives them confidence, it relaxes them, it gives them that boost of happiness. And this practice en enhances self-esteem. Your vocabulary, of course, grows and imagination and communicating their value is something that is, is on, on the shoulders of the parents. Screen time, on the other hand, compounds the issue, emphasizing skill over pleasure in reading. 
Now, parental involvement decreases as children age. Of course, there's only so much that you can do at a certain age. But if you have planted that seed at a very early age, if you have given them that love for reading in the very, very early stages of their life, then that is something that will reflect on the later part of their life. Reading for pleasure builds family bonds, it builds empathy, it builds attachment, and despite literacy awareness, the significance of reading for pleasure is often overlooked. And I'm, th I'm sure that that's something that you have probably seen with, with, with your children as well. Absolutely. Uh, uh, 100%. As I said, you know, I have, um, uh, I have three daughters mm. and um, all of them, uh, we've always tried. And um, one of them actually is now in university and the, um, uh, the other two, um, the second one is actually joining university now this, this, wow. um, uh, this very month. And the third one is still in, in primary school. So, yeah, so uh, educating, uh, 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 developing love for books is something that uh, that we've we've tried to invest. Um, uh, we've tried to invest in is, is something that we've tried to inculcate in them through early ages and uh, and also uh, love to, uh, to write as well. I guess both of these things are important and uh, that um, I think is, um, um, has uh, has kept them in good stead. Now, we mentioned the economic consequences that it cost the UK £2.5 billion a year making businesses unhappy with unprepared workers. Now, education's power, you can see that it, over, it, it helps overcome limits. It, it connects gaps in empowering individuals. We spoke about using technology and, and digital technology, which, you know, if you embrace it, if you come together and encourage reading to break this ignorance's chain, it might help one person, it might not help the other person. But it is something that we cannot ignore. It is here to stay and to make the best use of it. That's something for you to decide. But we have to include it. There's no way around it because in schools, that's how uh, things are. But if they come home and we as parents are not prepared, then that is also something that is not going to help the progress of that child. Literacy transforms minds. It opens paths to a brighter future for everyone. The Promise Messiah, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, uh, on whom we peace, emphasized the education and spiritual training for all, including women, including girls. He also emphasized on the spiritual and moral training of men and encouraged them to be educated. And similarly, he encouraged Ahmadi women and girls to seek both secular education and religious teachings. In fact, there was a time when the Promised Messiah, the founder of the Ahmadi Muslim community, on whom be peace, himself used to personally conduct religious classes for women. And in this uh, last uh, gathering of the Ahmadi Muslim community in Germany, His Holiness Hazrat Mizam Masood Ahmed, he also emphasized on the fact that it is important for, for, for women and for girls to acquire knowledge. And it is um, important for them to also go actively and, and work in, 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 in jobs and acquire jobs and work. Islam does not limit them. Islam does not hinder them uh, from going out and uh, be part of the workforce. Now, we're going to take a break here for the five o'clock news. And then after that, as I said, we'll be back with the second topic for today, which is about blind faith, certainty and science. Don't go anywhere. Stay with us. Here's the five o'clock news. Writings of the Promised Messiah, salam. Illness means the condition when the body does not function normally. And health is the condition when all natural matters function in their proper way. 
the moving away of a hand or foot or any other limb from its proper position causes pain. And if this condition persists for a time, not only the affected limb becomes useless, but it begins to affect other limbs also. The same is the case with the soul. When a person moves away from God, who is the true source of his life, and departs from the religion of nature, he is involved in suffering, and if his heart is not dead and retains its feeling, he feels the torment keenly. If this condition is not reformed, there is an apprehension that all spiritual faculties might gradually become useless and a severe torment might ensue. Thus no suffering comes from outside. All suffering is generated within a person. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace and blessings of God Almighty be upon you all. Thank you very much for joining us here and thank you very much for sticking around here for the second hour of today's program, which is on blind faith, certainty, science and Islam. Now, this is a topic which might intrigue you, which might raise a few eyebrows, but the 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 aim is to make sure that you un, that we kind of understand what exactly we mean by that. One of these um, new atheists, I won't mention the name, says that faith unsupported by evidence is a lethal weapon. Now there have been many allegations that have been leveled against religion, specifically against Islam, that we are basically following and adopting beliefs that have no empirical, no rational, no reasonable basis. Basically, God said and we did. How much of that is true? How much of that do we actually do? And uh, if you have any questions on that, by all means, do give us a call on 0208687-7878. If you want to send us a tweet, do so at Voice of Islam UK or send us a comment on Instagram. Um, when we talk about blind faith, blind faith refers to a strong belief or trust in something, majority or often it is, you know, religious or ideological without requiring or relying on evidence, reason, or even critical thinking. Uh, people who have blind faith accept, simple put, simply put, they just accept certain beliefs or assertions without any questions, even in the absence of concrete proof or you know rational justification. And if you go into this a little bit more deeper, they say that blind faith can be both positive as well as negative, depending, of course, on the context. In a positive context, Blind faith can provide comfort, it can provide hope, it can provide a sense of purpose to an individual, and it can help people endure difficult times. Have faith in the unknown, have faith in the unseen, as we in Islam know, or find solace in their spiritual or religious beliefs. You have a community around you, you have people, like-minded people who believe in the same thing, who have the same set of values, who have the same sense of community and belonging. Um, based on the fact that they share that same faith or their ideology. However, it can be problematic when it leads to rejection of scientific evidence, uh, when it comes to rejection of critical thinking or the dismissal of, of, of differing perspectives. It can hinder progress and create divisions within society. I know in if you look past 
couple of you know centuries back isn't that what um religion went through if you look back to the time of uh you know galileo isn't that what made him what 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 forced him basically uh people forced him to recant his beliefs because they did not match the beliefs and they did not match the ideology they did not match the faith of that time and isn't that what we also see you know in different religions when it comes to islam as well uh where you have dogmas on one side and you have you know science telling you something else on the other hand however is there a clash is there something that we have not understood is there something that the quran has said on that or not that is all something that we're going to try to answer in this part of the program so i i'm going to take the position that um, there is no such thing as blind faith hmm. there is no such thing as blind faith Good. in religion and there is no such thing as blind faith in life so there is a su- such a thing as faith but not blind faith so an example would be that based on evidence that i have since i have been uh, we've been co-presenters for some time yeah. so i have a lot of trust in your ability and faith in your ability to to deliver a oh. great show and come and uh, um, and, uh, and and do it alone if need be so if i <laughs> is that if, a warning for next week yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um uh, but i won't have blind faith in um uh, in in some other a random person's ability yeah, to come in yeah. you know sit in the uh, in the studio and uh, and deliver a show and similarly so on and so forth so and, and and also in religion i i you know quran repeatedly asks us to reflect to think about it a quran uh, at numerous occasions presents empirical evidence about various things so um yeah uh, I I'm not a believer in um uh in dogma without evidence and I'm going to take a position that it's actually uh, a faith um there is no such thing as blind faith and and faith is something which which grows uh, whether you're talking about um uh, about god or you're talking about anything else it's something that is related to your experiences it's related to your the evidence that's around you so that's uh, that's my uh, sort of two cents on that and and i think uh, the schism that we now see in the society you mentioned galileo so yeah ever since the reformation age uh is because religion became dogmatic hmm. and i think uh, the breath of fresh air that the founder of amdia muslim community hazrat mirza ghulam ahmed mela have mercy on his soul he Uh, brought um fresh thinking that listen there this there is empirical uh, empirical evidence about god there there has to be a, there religion and reason do not have to be separated they are very much essentially binded together so that's um uh, uh that's that's the belief that i have and i think that's what um what we in the amdi muslim community also believe Right. So, what is it that you believe on that? Is it blind faith? Is it uh something else? What do you 
think about this. Now, one one thing that you're absolutely right, when the Promised Messiah, alayhi salam, uh, on whom be peace, the founder of the Amdi Muslim community came, you also have this, uh, you know, when, you, when you talk about certainty, right? that's something that we're also going to touch upon in, in, in just a little bit. There's faith, there is um, 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 a belief, and then there is certainty. So the promised Messiah on whom be peace, he has elaborated on this in 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 you know different parts of of the books that he has. That there's different levels, right? So faith is basically you starting that journey that will get you to the stage of certainty. Um, and the example that he has given, we'll talk about this later on as well, is is about the fire. Hmm. Um, so you have certain stages. You see a fire. That's basically you are aware that the you, know, you see smoke. You see you, you see smoke basically. Yeah. So that's an indication that there should be that there is a fire. Yeah. Then you go closer and you actually see the fire. Absolutely. So that's the second stage. But then again, when you go closer, you feel the heat. You touch the fire. You get burned. That's absolute certainty that the fire does indeed exist right and that's the point that you want to be when it comes to faith right how do you get there that's the question absolutely do you get there by just saying this is how it is accept it that will you never can't. that will never get you to absolutely. that point absolutely you have to work you have to yes. you have to put in um, uh, the hours just uh, as you would put in the hours in a lab trying to prove a theory that you have come up with. So most of most scientific discovery is, starts from a hypothesis, mm. and then that hypothesis, is, um, and and that hypothesis, by the way, is based on uh, on some level of faith or some level of um, uh, of trust that uh, that particular scientist has his own, in his own intellect. That listen, this. Uh, this must work. Mm. That this has to work. So that you know that, or, or this must be true. But then he has to actually go in a lab and and prove that, and that's where em- empirical evidence comes from. But uh, that process is a time-taking process. Uh, it takes years and decades. It, it requires work. And similarly, uh, for you to find certainty of faith, for you to grow from the the stage of you thinking that there is X and therefore there must be Y from the stage of you um, um, uh, you seeing a smoke and thinking that there must be fire to the stage where you actually feel the heat of the fire will require some work, will require some, um, uh, some dedication, will require for you to follow a process. And, and I think that's what scientific experimentation at the end of the day is all about, mm. that if you follow that process and if you do reach the same... Um, conclusion at the end, then that experiment must be true, and 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 therefore uh, the um, the existence of that entity must also be true. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. How do we? Why? What do you understand by faith? Why do you have faith? Why do you believe in what you believe? Is it something that you have experienced? What were the reasons that you accepted? Uh, certain um, your faith or your religion that you follow. Um, blind faith, as I mentioned, so you know, apart from what you've just met, uh, mentioned, um, as I said, you can have two different uh, basically sides. Um, the one of the um, 
well-known physicists and authors, uh, Brian Greene, uh, he wrote The Elegant Universe and Fabric of the Cosmos. He says that exploring the unknown requires tolerating uncertainty. Now, the problem that we're facing in the world today is that everything needs to be proven. Everything needs to be tangible. So this clash between science and faith, this clash between dogma and uh, certainty and, and, and proven um, observations is something that is a lot of people are facing in the world today. Joining us on the line, our first guest for today is an imam of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community currently serving in Canada. Imam Asfan Suleiman is joining us. Assalamu alaikum and peace be upon you. Welcome to the Draft Time Show. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, now, Imam Asfand, one of the very first qualities of a believer mentioned in the Holy Quran, one of the very first things that we read in the Holy Quran, when God Almighty right. speaks about uh, the, the, the righteous, when God, about, God Almighty speaks about the believers, he says that they are those who believe in the unseen. Why? How do we understand this belief in the unseen? And why is that such a huge quality or you know one of the first things mentioned of a believer? Uh, thank you for the question and for having me today. Uh, yes, you're right. Uh, in the Holy Quran, uh, in the beginning uh, verses of the Holy Quran, Allah talks about, God talks about righteous people. Who are those righteous people? They believe in the unseen. Now, this is a genuine question. What is the unseen? Now, the way we can understand this is that uh, in our life today, there are many things which are not physically seen. We cannot physically feel them through all five senses. We cannot taste things. We cannot touch them. But there are things around us, and we have this evidence that they are there. For example, um, uh, our, for example, memory we speak from. Mm -hmm. It's not something, uh, you know, which we can touch or feel. We know it's there. We, we use it. Similarly, uh, there are many things which uh, are there, but we have this faith that they are there. Now, when we talk about unseen in the religious terminology, the first question, of course, comes to mind is God, because he's not seen. But the, the, the question is, how can we believe in God who is not seen without evidence? But, the, the, you know, Muslims do, do believe in God, but not without, without evidence. Mm. There are things which can be explained logically. So, for example, the existence of God can be explained logically through different evidences. People have different experiences. So, yes, God is there. He is unseen. But when we talk about God, we need to understand that there is this, this feeling that one may have when he has a connection with God. Another meaning of this, this unseen would be uh, to having, uh, uh, having faith in the hereafter. For example, people talk about life after death. Hmm. What is it? What's going to happen? That's something unseen, which is promised in many religious scriptures, right? So that is, again, something which you have to have a belief on. And then, you know, the main reason is why we have this unseen 
uh, you know, uh, mentioning the Holy Quran is, number one, it's, 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 it's a test of faith, really. Because in a religious context, believing in unseen is often seen as a test. So, yes, it is a test. Because if we were to know what's going to happen with us, and if we were to know we would see God with our naked eyes, then there was no need of sending prophets, right? So it's mm. a, a test. Another reason is to have humility, for example. It, it, it encourages humility and recognition of human limitation. Why? Because if you have this, uh, if you have this sense that you have a existence, there is an existence beyond our comprehension, it promotes, promotes a sense of uh, awe and humility. Otherwise, if you think that there is no, no being up there who, and we have no accountability, then human beings would be doing anything, and they would not care for human value. So these are a few things which comes to mind when you talk about unseen. Right. So um, are you then uh, arguing that the unseen uh, and the unexperienced are not the same thing. So you, it, God may be unseen, but God, uh, God wouldn't be something that you haven't experienced. No, that, that, no, that's not what I'm, saying. I'm trying to explain here. Is that it could be unseen, but it could be very well experienced. That's right. what I'm trying to say. Right, here. correct, absolutely. Right? It is very well experienced, hmm. uh, but it is still unseen. For example, how is it experienced? Number one. As I was talking about the existence of God, God talks about his existence and gives logical arguments mentioned in the Holy Quran about his existence. What is he talk about creation? He says that, uh, would you believe in other gods who have created nothing? Talk about creation of things, he says. So it's your own creation of God. These are those logical, uh, conclusive arguments through which understand and then based on this you have a spiritual enhancement but you conclude that there is a being that is a threat towards God when you threat towards him then you have personal experiences with God uh, Imam Saman I think we're going to try to reconnect uh, the, the line is not very clear but we do want to hear what you have to say so I think uh, Akib if you can uh, just you know try to reconnect to him uh, in one way or another. But I think it's very interesting what Imam Suleiman was saying here, yes. that you, if just based on the fact that you know, when he started off, there's so many things that mm. we are not able to see with our physical eyes. And mm. I think that's the mm. problem that we have in the world today, that everything needs to be um, um, visible. Uh, everything needs to be, uh, you know, tangible. You need to touch it. But again, yeah. if you think about it, um, so many things that we don't see, so many things that we don't uh, feel, touch, feel, we, can, we cannot touch, but yeah. that doesn't mean they don't exist. Exactly, and a very good example of that, for example, in this in this very room that we are sitting, uh, there are there are all sorts of radio waves uh, providing all sorts of different myriad signals. But we cannot, uh, we cannot see them, we cannot feel them, touch them, and we've got to have the right kind of device, for example, either a radio or a mobile phone, to be able to, um, to experience them. So um, I think that, that was the point that um, uh, Imam Asfand was also trying yeah. to make there, that yes, God is something definitely to be experienced, but um, 
he obviously cannot be seen through the naked yeah. eye because many other things we cannot see magnetic waves for example can we but yeah. uh, but they exist all right i think we'll let, let's try to uh, get him back uh, imam asfan right no no that's fine there. so my follow-up question imam asfan to you would yeah. be then uh, what is blind faith and and uh, does the concept does islam support the concept of blind faith Yes, as, as as you rightly mentioned, that it is uh, uh, mentioned in the Holy Quran, having faith in Anshin. But remember, it's not blind faith. Mm-hmm. Islam does not promote in believing there is something blind, and you have no conclusive, argument, you know, um, uh, proof of that. No, Islam does not say that. No, it 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 it, it, it bases anything on that. Uh, people normally, yes, they sometimes raise this allegation that Islam asks its people to believe in unseen, which means something that's blind or having blind faith. No, Islam does not promote that. You are mm. believing in something based on your logic, based on the uh, evidences you have around you. So when you base your evidences around you, for example, I give an example of uh, the creation of whole universe and human beings. Right. This is a logical argument. Who created us? The 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 the, the system that that's within us and outside of us. So this is one argument, and based on that, you can conclude that there is a being that God. Right. There is a superior being, and as you were just mentioning, when you enhance spiritually and have a connection with God, you know the promised Messiah, peace be upon him. Uh, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Azad Mirza Ghulam, Ahmad, peace be upon him, he made this very clearly. Many people asked him which faith is true, which faith is right, who to believe, how, you know, which faith is, is something, which religion we should practice. Hmm. So he said that, look, a religion or faith that gives you the idea of living God, this is it, and that's Islam. And he used to say to people that if you want to see a living God or you want to see a sign of living God, come and come to India and come live in Kadiana and I will show it to you. Hmm. So this is that connection which he had. And there are many people who have this connection with God. And this is how they know the existence of God. Imam is it wrong or is it right to have faith without evidence? I mean, do we... As Muslims, do we believe uh, in Islam? Do we believe in God, his angels, his books, his, you know, all the last day of, of, of judgment, which is one of the fundamental and, and core pillars of, of, of faith or religion in general? Is that something that we believe in without evidence? Uh, you know, it, it, it is very clearly mentioned uh, regarding this. Um, in our in our literature, uh, they are available on alislam.org and, and many other websites. That when when you say that, is it right or is it wrong? The real question is that you're not believing in unseen without evidence. True. This is the real question. You know, a Muslim is called upon to believe in unseen. It is not outside of the scope of reason. This is what I'm trying to explain. When we, it is within the reasoning, within the understanding and comprehension of us, of a Muslim, then it is not wrong. Hmm. Right? So this is what I'm trying to explain here. Sure. Like, like we have given an example, there are many things 
in the world which uh, though are unseen and yet they they prove to exist there are many things right but for example a concept of angels allah talks about god talks about in the holy quran they are unseen but we still believe in angels hmm. right there are people who have experiences with angels and there are scriptures mentioning angels descending upon prophet bringing the message of god right hmm. so we do find this in our scriptures as well so there is existence of angels as well are they seen no they're not seen but they are there and one problem that i think people in today's day and age are facing is that my religion is telling me something else and what i learn in school what science tells me what observation tells me is is something else um i give you one example i think this is something that you've come across as well i'm right. sure um not so much in within within the ahmadiyya muslim community but when it comes to the concept of jesus peace be upon him for example right you have uh 99% i think of the of the muslim nation of the muslim ummah people around the world believe that god almighty took prophet jesus peace be upon him physically to himself to the heavens wherever that may be right. and in the right. latter days when certain things will happen he will then descend to the earth again and then the 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 end of times will occur and you will have you know there's other concepts and other things that will occur as well that the jahl and antichrist and whatnot all of these things now this is something that if you try to tell right. and to explain to a 16 17 18 year old or even like 15 14 um they will look at you with you know a, right. a bit of a suspicious um uh, look but then right. what you have is then you have a, a muslim cleric you have an imam telling them well son this is how it is it's god's doing right. it is what it is you don't have a choice you got to believe in it how do you right. explain that i mean that's what i'm saying so can these religious and scientific beliefs can they coexist but uh, it, it is a general question you're right and i i have faced this question many times and what i have seen in people is that there are two extremes rather hmm. a person who has studied science right he his his knowledge in religion is is lacking then there is a religious person he has studied a religion but is his knowledge in science is lacking so when you talk to a guy who is a student of science he would not take anything which is mentioned by the cleric when you talk to a religious person when he hears different science theories he is going to go and, and and reject them you know the main thing is that if we understand science and religion properly they cannot be in contradiction hmm. we have to understand them properly you know the, the, the science and religion are two different they're like two different windows of looking at the world right science has its own, its own view religious religion has its own view so yes they do can and they do uh, coexist it is important to recognize that as i said that they often address the different aspects of life for example science would seek to explain the natural world through empirical evidence and observation while religion often deals with questioning of meaning purpose values 
spirituality. So uh, you have to reconcile between the both. Hmm. In in the understanding of the Holy Quran, I say, and this is our understanding, that science many a times becomes an aid for you to have a stronger belief in unseen and that is God. Why? Because through science you understand the laws of nature. You understand the whole world. And that's exactly what the religion is saying. They both come from God, just different aspects. So a science would become an aid, a very strong help for you to understand the existence of God. So yes, they do coexist, but you should always remember, if there is a contradiction, we have to reconcile it. Hmm. We have to reconcile it within the scope and the boundary which are provided to us by God, mentioned in the religious scriptures. But according to Islam, then there is no contradiction, as you mentioned, right? Right. right. We have oh. to reconcile it, as I said. We have to think, we have to sit down. According to Islam, there is no contradiction. Hmm. Opinionally, sometimes there is a contradiction, as, as you rightly mentioned, the example of Jesus Christ, peace be upon him. Scientifically, it is not possible. Now, how do we reconcile that? This is where Islam comes. This is where the Holy Quran comes and says, yes, it cannot happen. Why? Because Allah, God Almighty, will not break his own laws. Hmm. Yes, he could do it, but he will not break his own laws. The law is that we're going to live here, we're going to die here. This is our human, this is our physical body that is made to live in this world, not elsewhere. Hmm. Imam Suleiman, how would you then explain the concept of miracles? The concept of miracles are explained very well uh, within the Islam. Uh, like I said, if you, if, you, if you have any example at hand, we could explain that. Uh, miracles are something which are, of course, mentioned in the Holy Quran, but remember they are within the, uh, within the laws of nature as well. As I said, God does not break its, its law. But I think, for example, one is, miracle uh, that comes to, to, to at the top of my head right now, when we look at um, Moses, hmm. right? So you have right. uh, the, the parting of the sea. Yeah. You have... Uh, right. uh, yeah, I think that that's one... The magic. Uh, the, the magic, the, the, the rod, the, snakes, the, yeah. the, the, the stick. Um, right. How would you then explain something? You know, you know, uh, you know these, are, these miracles which are mentioned in scriptures, these are, as I was saying, these are within the laws of nature, yeah. which, with the laws which God has created for us. Allah will not break them. But it is, miracle is something which is beyond our comprehension. Hmm. But the real question is, do we know all the laws of God? No, we don't. True. It is available within the laws of God, but we are not aware of all the laws of God. So, as you were mentioning the miracle of, uh, for example, the, the magic, uh, the, the, it becoming, uh, the, you know, uh, it became a, a snake, for example, that magic. At that time, they had limited knowledge. It was a magic. God says it was a magic. But God broke that magic, and, and God exposed how they do that magic. Right, hmm. it, it it was a magic that would that would just just you know kind of uh, play with your eyes. Yeah, and God spoke that. There is another miracle of Moses, peace be upon him. For example, walking through the water. Right, today we know how that happened. 
at that time people did not know hmm. the miracle in that was that timing for example when he picks up his rod and he points towards the towards the river and we know that it it, it split but the reality is that it was a low and high tide time at that time and that time which he picks up his rod and points towards the river it is that timing when god tells them that do it now that is the miracle at that time hmm. and people thought it was because of a stick no it was that timing at that time god told them to do it now and he did it so like i said laws of god we do not know all but they are very well within the laws of god wonderful then imam suman one last question from my side that i want to ask you is how do you know which faith is the one i mean what what in your personal life from 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 your point of view what what certainty did islam give to you that you decided to become an imam you decided to tell others about it you decided to you know dedicate your life for for this religion for this faith you know i was explaining the promise messiah the founder of amdia muslim community and the amdia muslim community in general we have this strong and very strong message that goes out hmm. everybody that there is a living god who talks today who listens to your prayers today the promises have peace be upon him made that point very clear he says there is a living god and you must believe in that faith that leads you towards a living god when i talk about living god i'm not saying you know jesus christ peace be upon him being god no it's not a living god i'm not saying you start worshiping idols no a god that you know from within yourself that it's there is hearing your prayers personally i have many <clears throat> personal incidents which which i hate to share but you know why i became an imam was it was due to this very reason that when you know <clears throat> that there is god who talks to you why not go out and tell to others hmm. why not bring others towards god so they also enjoy their being they, they also enjoy the the existence of god and they also enjoy the purpose of their lives as well and that is the purpose that we attain that righteousness and we we have that communion with god that hmm. communication with god and that's of course through prayers through supplications through helping others helping humanity when you help humanity you have this expectation of reward and that's also unseen by the way yeah. reward is also <laughs> unseen by the way as we were yeah. talking about right yeah. right so what is that reward what is that reward that reward is god himself this is the message out there which we give to people and this is the message i have for you today wonderful Imam Sultan Suleiman, an Imam of the MD Muslim community currently serving in Canada. Jazakallah. Thank you very much for for joining us today and answering some of the questions. Jazakallah. Thank you for having me today. 02086877878 is the number for you to call if you have any questions then by all means do send us a tweet, do let us know, call in or send us a comment on Instagram. We're going to move uh, on to our next guest for today uh, and we're going to jump to the other side of the United States all the way to I believe it's Los Angeles. Imam Mahmoud Kosar is with us on the line. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Draft Time show. Wa alaikum assalam. You forgot where I live now, huh? I've been moving so much. <laughs> you guys move so much I I, I lose track sometimes. <laughs> 
It happens, it happens. Don't worry. I forget yeah. sometimes. <laughs> but I see you haven't lost that sense of humor and that smile of yours. <laughs> Wonderful. Jazakallah for joining us today. Imam uh, Mahmoud, what role does faith play in your personal life? It's a very good question. And I think anybody who's listening, the best way to explain it would be something that I remember reading from the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the Promised Messiah, salam. He basically said faith or even religion is defined by two things, your love for God and your love for humanity. Hmm. And so if that is what faith truly is, then I see that on a daily basis. There are times when I'll, I'll separate from the world and, and spend and devote to God, and that's important for me and my faith. And there's other times when I'm, you know, in a food pantry serving food to, you know, various people who are in need. And that's also part of my faith. And I think that's one essence of people who forget. When they think of faith, they think it's only God or only worship or only angels or only something that's unseen. Hmm. But there's an element of faith that is very much, you know, tangible by you and I. Our service to humanity, our return to, you know, whatever we can do. Even just a kind gesture, a smile, for example. The Holy Prophet Muhammad on whom be peace, used to smile. And he said, that's charity. That's mm. a way of serving the world. So I think the elements of faith are a lot more, you know, um, vibrant and, you know, I could say expandable than, than they seem to appear in today's world, especially especially this world where it's becoming more and more godless, right? Mm. America's fastest growing religion, other than Islam, is atheism, right? Mm. Uh, it continues to grow globally, but even in America, in a place where you know, Christendom is, is very much uh, held strong to, to, to the core values of America, and yet atheism is growing on a daily basis, especially in inner cities and, and, and more educated areas, so to speak. Right. Imam Mahmoud, um, you mentioned atheism. Let me read out a quote from Christopher Hitchens' book, uh, God is Not Great, and I'd like to respond to that quote. So he writes um, in that book, and I quote, One must have faith in order to believe something or believe in something. Then the, likelihood, then the likelihood of that something having any truth or value is considerably diminished. The harder work of inquiry, proof, and demonstration is infinitely more rewarding and has confronted us with more finding far more transcendent than any theology. Page 71, God is not great. How would you respond to that? Are you, you, what was your take on it? Because you mentioned you were going to say something as well. No, so, um, <laughs> so my take on, uh, on this is, um, uh, is very simply that you, you, have, to, uh, you have to work for, uh, you, you have to put in the hours for you to get a result. Yep. So here's interesting the way I see it, actually. I feel like most atheists, especially in the West, they have an underlying prejudice. And that underlying prejudice is that they all come from a background of Christianity. Their forefathers were Christian. And so the prejudice is that if their forefathers were Christian, the best religious defense would be Christianity. And that's why they never put in the right effort or time into even looking into any other religion. To them, every other religion is a joke, including Islam to them, God forbid. And for that reason, when, if I were to look at Christianity, I myself understood why I became a Muslim or why I'm, I'm a Muslim or why I, you know, I adhere to Islam is because there are a number of things, from my understanding, in Christianity that don't make sense or don't, aren't very good defenses against atheism. 
And so whenever I look at even a quote that he's mentioning here, when he quotes, when he says theology, he doesn't mean theology as a whole. He means Christianity. Hmm. And many of the quotes that, you know, most of these atheists will quote or their, you know, contradictions that they'll identify are 99% of the time directed towards a a religion that they themselves have come from or their forefathers are from. And so I think the real effort, if we really want to put an effort, as he's saying in this quote, the real effort should be, why don't you go in and actually look into other religions, especially Islam, especially Ahmadiyya uh, version of Islam, I should say. Because for us, I think the biggest thing that connected me to anything that I believe, or why I even think faith is in every aspect of my life, is because everything that we mention in our faith makes sense. And why does it make sense? Because if God created us and he made all of the natural world make sense, the spiritual world should make sense. Why is it that he would create one world absolutely perfect without any contradiction whatsoever, and then he'd create another one that has all these contradictions and confusions? And so I think the confusions are only created by us. There are confusions of the past, for example, among the science world as well. When scientists didn't believe in gravity and so many other elements that are basic, you know, the world is round and so on and so forth, then, it, then science also suffered. And today, as science is improving and in, in enhancing, the spiritual world is also improving and enhancing. And I think it's in the, in the lead of that is the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Because when we talk about faith, when we talk about you know, basic concepts of religion, for example, miracles, a lot of people will associate faith with miracles, but they forget miracles are not outside the scope of this natural world. We may or may not understand all of them, but they're not outside of this world because why? God created something that he knew. He didn't have to break a rule he created himself. And that's, I guess, the bigger discussion here. When you look at these quotes, he says, make an effort. And, you know, atheology is a, is a useless effort to him. But it's a useless effort because a lot of the history or a lot of the premise of faith they associate with Christianity and associate with other, like I said, other religions mm. or other denominations of Christianity, Catholicism, for example. And not, not to call anybody out, but I feel like if somebody genuinely is listening and, and wants to know, okay, well, what is the difference? What's so special about Islam? Islam, for example, embraces the idea of evolution. Only it says it's a guided evolution. It's not something that's outside the scope of God. God guided it. Of course, there's no reason, like, if, 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 a, if a man and woman were to join tonight, tomorrow a baby will not be born. It will take nine months. There's a slow, steady process of birth and growth and progress. The same exists with our creation. But when you look at Christianity, it says, nope, Adam was born just like this. Then a rib was pulled out and boom, Eve was created just like this. And then somehow there's a part of the history that's missing or now the rest of the world was just created. How does it create it? I've had conversations. I had one pastor come to the mosque and he started to debate with me. And with all due respect, I stopped him. I said, look, forget everything else. Just tell me, Adam and Eve were on this world. They had two sons. One son killed the other son. We're left with three people. Tell me how the rest of the mankind was, you know, continued from there on if you believe it started from Adam. And after a few moments of trying here and there, then he said, you know what, incest. It was incest. There's no other way. Hmm. God forbid, you know. And I said, what do you mean? How could you embrace such an idea that the beginning of this world, right, as introduced by God, is all, in, you know, is all based on incest? But again, he had no other way. And again, these are my points where if somebody were to be looking outside and looking in from, from an atheist point of view, they could look at this one example of this one pastor saying this one element and have a lot of doubts. Hmm. Whereas in, in Islam, we believe that, like I said, mankind has been created 
over you know millions of years and slowly has built up to be what we are today. And even then, spiritually also, we've been slowly developing. Where Adam came and his you know commandments were very simple. The Holy Quran says his commandments were as simple as you know wear clothing, you know live in communities and get married. Simple two three commandments. But then as time went on, when Noah came or Abraham came. And then, of course, finally, when the Holy Prophet Muhammad, on whom be peace, mm-hmm. came, he gave us a complete code of conduct of how to live our lives. And since then, since 1400 years, we've been using that one book with that one code, with that one Sharia that helps us you know, embrace every aspect of life. And it's, it's all, it all makes sense, meaning the, the work of God and the Word of God has to make sense, has mm-hmm. to connect. Because if it doesn't, like the work of God would be nature, right? And the Word of God would be all the spiritual scripture. If it doesn't connect, then we have a problem. Then, then there's doubts in the existence of God. But we don't believe there's any doubt there. We believe it's our understanding, our lack of understanding, I should say, when it comes to these things. And also, I think when, when, you, when you mentioned that quote of, uh, of, of him, who says that we don't put the work in? Exactly that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, do you, yeah, do you know how difficult it is sometimes to be a believer? Yes. Right. Yeah. I know, absolutely. And yeah, I think that's a, that's a whole other discussion. You're absolutely right. You know, the, the Holy Prophet Muhammad, our Holy Prophet, said that knowledge, you know, you, you seek knowledge from a cradle to your grave. You, yeah. know? There, you know, it doesn't matter how, you know, if you have to go all the way to China, you go and find that truth. And we see that in the Muslim, the golden age of Islam. No atheist can deny the golden age of Islam, where from this wilderness of Arabia that was underdeveloped, it had no tribalism, no way of connecting with one another, had no knowledge. They lived in deserts, and all of a sudden, within a span of 30 years, they became a world power. And they toppled empires that had existed for thousands of years. And then they shared knowledge, literally from China. This idea of printing and books was literally taken from China and given to Europe. There's a historian who wrote about the time of Europe when, when Spain had become Muslim Spain. He says at that time, you walk down the streets of Spain, and they had street lights. Hmm. He said, but at that exact same time, if you go to London, he said, you would be knee-deep in mud. Hmm. I guess you could still be knee-deep in mud nowadays, but <laughs> <laughs> that's beside the fact. <laughs> I guess London's still working on that. <laughs> but, but I'm saying, historically speaking, <laughs> he talked about the development of, you know, of the world. That, that's a typical North American <laughs> comment. Uh, <laughs> And I take exception to that. Sorry, you, you two can laugh it away. You, you being North American, sorry, I, I, I won't. <laughs> But please carry on. No, no, no. I understand. No, it's, it's always good to see how 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 the, how the British will react. How British? How British you are. <laughs> right. Uh, so, last question for me, Imam Mahmood. Um, uh, we live in a very agnostic world. We um, we live in a society where it's not fashionable anymore to believe in a religion or believe in God. What would you say to yeah. somebody who who has that upbringing? How do they find God? So here's the interesting thing. You know, I like how you use the word agnostic society and not atheist, because there's a clear difference, you know. An atheist society is people who absolutely categorically declare there is no God. That group of people is very minute. The vast majority of those who, you know, who, who sway in that direction are considered agnostic, which means that they believe in a God. They don't know what that God is, what he is, how he is. Is there any connection to him? And so in essence, they believe in a distant God. 
And most religious people today have been swayed by this idea where they may be religious on paper. They may say they're Christian or Muslim or whatever. But they, when you get deeper into the conversation about faith and God, they kind of hold the same thing. God is distant. You know, I don't need to pray. I don't really need to connect with him. And so the biggest challenge that I think we have today, and it's quoted by the Promised Messiah, founder of the Ahmadi Muslim community, which is that, you know, God is alive today as he was in the past. He hears as he used to hear. And that element is what is missing. And that's why a majority of our world is agnostic, is because they've placed God in this very distant place where, you know, he doesn't intervene, he doesn't interject, he's just there. And he may be there, he may not be there, and what form he's there, we don't know. And we don't care to even find out. And that's exactly why, you know, when if somebody were to ask me, well, what, why do you care about God? Why do you care? Because the idea is that he is the truth. And his truth will actually help set you free. Mm. What I mean by that is, there are so many social evils that exist today. So many, they're countless. All of which, if we do not start to connect with a greater purpose, a greater being, then we will continue to live in this, this rat race that we currently live in. For example, there's, in this world that we live in, these social evils that we have, we have you know, constant consumption of, for example, social media. Social media itself is not wrong, but it has convinced people to be insecure about themselves. So much so that there's a rat race for materialism. I got to make myself feel whole. How do I make myself feel whole? I got to fill it with whatever products are being shown to me, whether it's a nice watch or a car or TV, it could be a, 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 you know, um, a shirt or whatever, shorts, doesn't matter, certain logos, certain companies. And then people start to, again, earn money so that they can purchase those things so that they can feel whole, only to find out that they feel more empty inside and they seek more. And this constant vicious cycle will exist in a world that doesn't have God. Because the only way where you can feel whole is if you have that confidence where you know that you're whole. And it is only Islam. To give you an example, when the Holy Prophet Muhammad, be peace, when he would stand in front of a mirror, you know, just imagine, for example, today's world, where it's consumed by beauty and consumed by all this, this desire to look better, look like those Hollywood actors. I live in L.A., so, you know, this whole Hollywood nature, you know, culture is there. And they'll convince you, look in the mirror, and you're, you lack X, Y, and Z. You need this cream, and you need this makeup, and you need this dress or this shirt or whatever. Whereas when the Holy Prophet Muhammad, وسلم, when he would look in the mirror, he would say, you are beautiful. And, I would, and my prayer is that my inside should be just as beautiful as this outside. Meaning he reaffirmed that there was beauty, as any Muslim, any faith-going person should understand, that God has created us to be beautiful. But then what are we lacking? We're not lacking the external beauty, but we've got to work on the internal beauty. How do we make ourselves whole inside, be- beautify ourselves, I should say. Hmm. And so that's exactly how constantly we see, and that's again something reflected by the promised Messiah, salam, the founder of the Ahmadi Muslim community. He said, our hearts are like the Kaaba. He said, in this Kaaba, just like in our hearts, just like that Kaaba, we have placed idols in it. Each and every one of us has dozens, if not hundreds of idols, just like that Kaaba did. And he said, the only way to, to cleanse this heart, this Kaaba of ours, is to do exactly what that Kaaba had to do, which was allow the Holy Prophet Muhammad, وسلم, enter your heart, enter that Kaaba, and to break each and every one of those idols with his own hands. The same we have to do with our hearts. We have to allow the Holy Prophet and the message of Islam and the faith enter our hearts and cleanse our hearts. Once we start cleansing our hearts, 
we'll realize that we are we are prey to or we're slaves to so much of this materialism. The slaves to this new iPhone that's coming out. We all need to have it. You know, slaves to you know, dressing a certain way. Slaves to a certain attraction, certain influence, certain whatever. And once you're able to disconnect with all of those, then you understand you filled your heart. Once you cleanse your heart, you have to fill it. What do you fill it? You fill it with the love of God and the love of humanity, which goes back to exactly what that definition of faith truly is. Always a pleasure, always an honor to have you on. Thank you very much for, for, for such a beautiful explanation. Jazakallah, thank you so much. And, thank you, you know, again. Good, always good to hear your voice. Always, always have you. <laughs> oh, good to have you on. Thank you so much, brother. Thank you. As-salamu alaykum. Now there we have it, 0208-687-7878. How to beautify that inner um, condition of yours, in the, the inside uh, of, of your condition. That's something that we need to work on. And I think in this world, in this day and age that we live in, it's certainly, by all means, not a simple task. The Promised Messiah, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, he says that be it known, therefore, that faith means a sincere declaration of the acceptance of the message of a prophet out of righteousness and as a matter of wise precaution, purely on the basis of goodwill. That is to say, to proclaim acceptance wholeheartedly, finding that certain reliable factors point in that direction without waiting for perfect and conclusive proof. The stage when perfect reasons and conclusive arguments become available in support of the truth as designated the stage of certainty through knowledge. When God Almighty, out of His special bounty, should in an extraordinary manner bestow the lights of guidance and should acquaint a creature of His with His favors and bounties and should bestow reason and knowledge from Himself and opening the doors of vision and revelation should disclose the wonders of divinity and should reveal His beauty as the Beloved, that stage is designated understanding. In other words, certainty by sight and is also called guidance and insight. Faith means acceptance at a stage when knowledge is not yet complete and the struggle with doubts and suspicions is still in progress. He who believes, that is to say, has faith on the basis of probability and likelihood and despite weaknesses and the lack of perfect means of certainty is accounted righteous in the estimation of the Supreme One. Thereafter, perfect understanding is bestowed on him as a bounty, and he is given to drink of the cup of understanding after partaking of faith. When a pious one, on hearing the call of a messenger, a prophet, or a commissioned one of God, does not just go about criticizing, but takes that, that portion which he can recognize and understand on the basis of clear proof, that means of acceptance of faith, and considers that which he is unable to understand as metaphorical or allegorical, and thus removing all contradiction of the way, believe simply and sincerely. Then God Almighty, having pity on him and being pleased with his faith and hearing his supplications, opens the gate of perfect understanding for him. Thank you very much for listening in. If you want to find out more on this topic, go to alislam.org and read for yourself what the Promised Messiah had to say. From all of us here, Assalamu alaikum.